Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be talking about anime episodes 186 through 189, which will be covering manga chapters 285 through 293. So yeah, that's right. I'll be covering four episodes on this podcast as I really wanted to cover the entire Nolan Kalgara flashback in one go. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite flashbacks in the entire series, the story of Mont Blanc, Nolan, and the great warrior Kalgara. Alright, so the synopsis. We begin with everyone getting off the Maxim safely, or somewhat safely, for the time being with Luffy working to make his way back up to NL to finish the fight. But before that, Wiper recalls a story about the great warrior Kalgara and his best friend Montblanc Noland, and we get a flashback to see how they became friends and what happened to both of them long, long ago. Alright, so differences. There actually are quite a few differences, most of them to just sort of pad out time. Um, So yeah, there's a brief extension of a scene for when Usopp is jumping off of the Ark Maxim to save Sanji. And it's a lot more elaborate where he basically falls off and then almost starts heading towards the trees. But then he gets saved by the Usopp ah rope. And uh, But in the manga, he just literally jumps off and then he makes it to the clouds and just gets stuck like he does in the in the anime. But they extended this by a couple more minutes. Similarly, there's a couple more scenes with Luffy and Aisa making their way through the ruins of Shandora. And yeah, I, I mean in the manga it's literally just Luffy rolling around in the ball and Aisa just kind of screaming at him. And then, and then again, similarly, there's a, a flashback of Robin warning them about NL's plan from a few episodes back. And then similarly, there's an inclusion of, of a flashback with Konis' warning in Angel Isle. And both of these flashbacks are literally just there to pad out time because we just saw them. And I mean, even in like a weekly context, you know, in, in when it's originally aired, you may have seen these scenes like a week or two ago. But I mean, even then, it's like your memory has to be pretty bad if you can't remember this. Um, some more prominent changes, though, happen in the flashback itself. Um, this one's not exactly prominent, but in the in the anime, Kalgara stabs the giant snake in the head and it just dies. However, in the uh, anime, you actually see him his spear stuck inside the eye, and so he basically stabbed him through the eye to kill him in the manga. I'm assuming this was done to sort of make it a little less graphic because it's a lot more bloodier, or I guess not a lot more bloodier. It's a little bit more bloodier, especially, and then you have the the spear just sticking out of the eye. And then this one's probably the most baffling one of all because it's actually kind of important to getting the context of the end of the flashback. So in the in the anime, they leave out a portion of the journey back to Jaya. So after Nolan makes it back, he tells the king where, you know, about this golden treasure that he's found. And so the king wants to go. And in the anime, they just kind of like show up on Jaya, as, you know, as if nothing has happened. But in the manga... This journey is actually much more, um, well, it's more detailed in a montage, and so you actually see what they go through to get there. And this is actually kind of important, and I'm going to go into way more detail about this in the actual episode. But yeah, this is never seen in the anime, so it's a little confusing too. Alrighty, so let's jump into my thoughts. So Usopp goes back for Sanji and jumps off the Maxim to safety. And this is kind of a funny moment of Usopp freaking out as he falls trying to hit the clouds and not any of the stone or the forest. And like I said in the difference, this is a little bit more elaborate in the uh, anime version. And I actually kind of find it more funnier. And so I'm kind of glad that they added this. 
We then see NL survey the damage that Sanji has caused, and it turns out NL is able to repair the ship relatively simply. So, I mean, even even he had like a contingency contingency plan with the jet dials installed all over the arc. So all Sanji really did was, I guess, just create an opening for him to rescue Nami and Usopp. We see Luffy and Aisa begin the long journey back up to the Ark. There's not really much to this moment, but there's just something that always hit me really hard about the moment where Aisa sees the Death Pia Cloud. And for the first time after trying to maintain a strong facade, you know, of the strong Shandian warrior this whole time, she turns to Luffy with tears in her eyes and showing vulnerability for the first time and says to him, Luffy, is Sky Island going to disappear? And it obviously reminded me a little of Nami in Arlong Park, but this serves to reinvigorate why Luffy needs to beat NL and give his, gives him a personal connection and a reason why he needs to face NL and beat him again, along with the desire to ring the bell for Cricket. But this gives him a connection to the people of the island itself. I feel not only is this scene important to give Luffy that personal connection and a reason to fight, but just seeing Isa like this is heartbreaking and you really feel for everyone else too who is about to lose their homes and thereby giving Luffy a connection with all the citizens of Sky Island. And this is a great like storytelling method as otherwise Luffy would just be beating Enel for the sake of beating him up and that's just not who Luffy is. And it makes us, the viewer and reader, way more invested in this fight because Luffy has a personal connection not only with Cricket but also the people of Sky Island. We then see that Robin managed to get everyone to safety to the upper layer and was able to meet up with Luffy and Aisa. Luffy then leaves Aisa and Pierre in the care of her, while Nami, Usopp, and Sanji also managed to find Robin at the same time. After learning that Luffy is still going after Enel, Nami decides to go after him to help him escape later on. Enel then unleashes his death pia plan with an attack called Mamaragan that rains lightning bolts down everywhere. This has got to be one of the greatest show of power in the series so far. I mean, just the sheer amount of raw power on display here is insane as he rains down multiple L4 level lightning blasts on the upper yard and Skypea. During all this, the injured begin to regain consciousness, including Wiper, who after seeing the destruction of the upper yard and the Sky Islands, he begins to remember a story that the Shandian chief told him as a child about the great warrior Kalgara and his best friend Montblanc Noland. Now, Kalgara is a figure I haven't really talked about much yet on the podcast, but he has been referenced many times, and to the Shandians, he's sort of a mythological figure on par of like Hercules that everyone idealizes and looks up to. But here we finally are about to see who he actually was, as well as the real Montblanc Noland, and not the fairy tale version in Cricket's storybook. We then launch into a flashback, a really far back flashback, going back 400 years about the great warrior Kalgara and the notorious liar Noland. One thing I will say about this flashback right off the bat is, it's weird placement in the arc. I, for the life of me, can't understand why this flashback is inserted dab smack in the middle of the final climax of the fight. Like, it's just so weirdly placed. It ruins the pacing of the whole climax so much. And... It's like just as we're about to ramp up to Luffy facing Enel again and everyone on the island is in this like grave danger, we launch into this flashback that has none of the characters in the present day, you know, referenced here. However, that being said, I can kind of overlook that because this flashback is so damn good and easily one of the better ones in the entire series. 
And that's saying something because every single flashback in One Piece is amazing. I mean, they are all so emotionally resonant and like so captivating. And yet this one stands above a lot of them. And I'm not really going to say which ones are better than this one because many of them haven't happened yet. So to avoid spoilers, but I can tell you this flashback is easily one of the best ones in the entire series and probably one of the better ones up till now. Maybe Nami's is a little bit more, I think a little bit better than than, than this one to me, but it's close. Anyways, getting into the flashback itself, we finally get to see Kalgara in the flesh taking out a few invading pirates, and we are also introduced to the real Nolan subduing a massive fish for food so that his crew can eat. And I honestly did not expect Kalgara to be like this when he was first introduced. I thought he'd be more straight-laced and kind of more mellow, a mellow version of Wiper, but he's like downright menacing and feral here, and it's kind of interesting to see. I was really caught off guard with that. And we're also introduced to the real Noland, and he was definitely nothing like I imagined, mostly because the only depiction of him we've seen so far is that children's book drawing of him, which intentionally makes him look silly. He's actually really badass looking and buff as hell, and not at all how he's depicted in that book. We see that he's very much capable and strong as a warrior as he slays this massive fish to feed his crew. And one night, he's drawn to an island by the singing of a bell. Meanwhile, the Shandians are dealing with some sort of disease that is infecting and killing villagers. The village elders believe their gods have cursed them, and in order to save the village, they believe a human sacrifice needs to be made. Nolan and his crew make landfall and immediately find... Seto, a young Shandian boy, and discovers he's been infected by the Kinets plague, which means tree fever, ki meaning tree and netsu meaning fever, and Nolan has the doctor treat the boy and inoculate everyone else. Meanwhile, the Shandians prepare a ritual sacrifice to appease their gods by offering the life of a young girl named Moose to that giant snake that we've seen. However, just before the snake can eat her, Nolan comes out of nowhere and takes out the snake in one slash. And can we just take a moment to say WTF? Like, Nolan is hella buff here. Like, we kind of got the sense that he was strong after taking down that giant fish, but he just easily one-shotted this giant snake's head off. That's something Zoro even couldn't do. And Zoro couldn't even make a scratch on the current snake. And it kind of puts things into perspective how strong Nolan actually was. And by extension, Kalgara as well, since they both seem to be somewhat equal in strength as Kalgara then attacks Nolan. And Kalgara demands Moose to sacrifice herself, but Nolan stops her again, but gets stabbed in the process. Nolan then launches into a speech condemning the ritual and their resistance to advancement and asks them to give him a chance to cure the disease. The village chief offers him 24 hours, as even though he may not believe or agree with him, he does recognize when someone is in earnest trying to help. I actually really like this moment. It shows that disagreements don't always have to be contentious, and if we just give each other a chance with open minds and hearts, good things could come about for both sides. With his crew being held hostage as collateral, Nolan sets out on the island and finds the tree he needs to produce more of the cure, but then gets trapped in a landslide caused by an earthquake where Kalgara then finds him and proceeds to mock him as he believes the gods have now struck against him. This next scene is probably one of the more emotionally charged scenes in all of Skypiea. As Nolan is trapped under a huge landmass, Kalgara sits and watches as the clash of ideologies takes place. 
Calgaro's belief in his own culture of gods and the divine versus Nolan's science and advancement philosophy. It's definitely clear from the outset that Oda's belief in the world is is probably more on along the lines of an agnostic or atheist, as he's indicated throughout the series so far. But there's also this wonderful quote later on at the end of this flashback about how he expresses that Nolan isn't against, uh, you know, gods and the divine, but to him, the thing that's most important are people's lives. And I think that's an important distinction to make. It's not that you can't be religious or you can't be spiritual, but when it comes at the cost of people's lives or happiness, then then that becomes a problem, and each situation needs to be looked at individually and objectively. But I just love this exchange between Nolan and Calgara, as Calgara is stuck in his ways, but Nolan aggressively reasons with him about what is actually happening and what they're trying to do is unnecessary. Now, one could argue that one culture shouldn't be pushing their ideals and morals onto another culture, but I think here Noland is coming from a simple place of he wants to, these people to be informed with the information experience and experience that he's gained, as well as to simply stop one practice of ritual human sacrifice. He's not really trying to fundamentally change their way of life, but just find a way to prevent people from dying unnecessarily. Eventually, Noland strikes a chord with Calgara, and we learn that the girl they are preparing to sacrifice is his own daughter which was kind of a shock to me at the time, I remember. I mean, it is, I guess I just never really put the two and two together because they don't look anything like each other. But yeah, an adolescent giant snake then appears and attempts to eat Nolan, but just then, Calgara kills the snake and saves Nolan, and you can see Calgara working it out in his head what he's just done and processing out loud what he knows versus what Nolan just told him. And with his face full of tears, he's ultimately a man who is trying to save his village that he loves so much. And this is really a pretty powerful moment to see, you know, him, this courageous, great warrior, Calgara, full on crying and accepting that he, that, you know, he may be wrong and that there may be a better way to do things. And it really hit hard and it's so well acted by both voice actors. Nolan is then saved and they go on to produce the cure and save everyone in the village in a really fun montage. But then we cut to some time later where we see Calgara and Nolan have become really great friends as they run into a baby snake or the grandchild of the giant snake that they killed earlier. And, you know, they have a good laugh at the fact that they just simply refer to it as a snake and not a god any longer. Calgara then shows Nolan and his crew the golden city of Shandara and all its glory. And in stark difference from its current day appearance, where it's been stripped of its gold by Enel, you can actually see all the buildings were plated with gold at one point, which is insane. Calgara offers them all the gold they can carry because the two things that they are actually there to protect is the city itself and, more importantly, the bell. And specifically, the poneglyph that's embedded at the base of the bell, just as Robin had hypothesized. It's interesting now that we have two completely different civilizations who've been tasked with protecting a poneglyph for generations, even though they don't have any idea what it is or what it says. Both the Shandians of Jaya and now the, and then the Nefertari family in Alabasta both do the same thing, but they're from vastly different cultures. And what this means, it's still not clear, but the Poneglyphs clearly have some important information that was meant to be passed on to a time that it can actually be read for some purpose. It's kind of funny and a little hypocritical of me, but the romantic side of me wants to believe that when Calgara explains the golden bell is used to guide souls of their ancestors back home, 
But I also feel like since what drew Nolan to Jaya was the bell, it was almost like their ancestors guided Nolan back to save their descendants. And I know it's counter to the whole science, you know, is everything, but sometimes I like to believe in the unbelievable and the romanticism of storytelling, which is the fun part about One Piece, is that it kind of skirts that line between both. Then we get a really like aha moment when Kalgar and Nolan are looking at and talking to the cute little child snake and remark that, that saying, are you going to eventually grow up to the size of that giant snake? And Kalgara mentioned it'd probably be at least 100 years before it gets to that size. Then it kind of like dawns on you that this little guy is the giant snake of the present that's been terrorizing everybody in the upper yard. And this cute little guy grows up to be that monster. It now makes sense why it had such a strong reaction to seeing Chandra because it grew up here and hasn't seen it in so long. It reminded it of those fun times with Nolan and Kalgara. It missed its home, which is actually really sad in retrospect because later on during the montage of all the good times that they had, you see the snake or Nola as it's eventually named, you know, after Nolan, you know, they were all happily, you know, friends with the people and especially Kalgara and Nolan. It, it would almost seem like they were like he, it was his, their pet. And yeah, it, it now makes sense why when when he saw Chandra, it just started breaking out into tears. I think one thing this flashback does so incredibly well in such a short amount of time is how it establishes and creates this real sense of brotherhood and friendship between Kalgara and Nolan. You totally buy into the fact that these guys are brothers now and it really anchors the flashback as well as the emotional and extremely tragic nature of this story. This one friendship is the emotional crux of the whole entire Skypiea arc. If this didn't work, I think this arc would have suffered quite a bit, as the setup and payoffs would just not have worked at all. You'll know what I'm talking about once we finish the arc, but believe me when I say this friendship is hugely important to the arc as a whole, but also it's just a really good self-contained in and of itself story as well. And we also see the origins of many of the things found throughout the arc, whether it be the South Bird, the snake, the pumpkins, the map. I mean, it all stemmed from here, and we even see them have similar bonfire party as the Straw Hats did previously, so there's this sort of generational connection as well. However, after the montage of good times, as well as the research and exploration montage, seemingly out of nowhere, the Shandians are upset with Nolan and his crew and decide to shun them for some slight against their history. We see that Kalgar is so upset that he's on the verge of killing Nolan, and so he wants to distance himself from him. Nolan and his crew have been surveying the island and clearing out the island of any possible threats, and this most likely has to do with what everyone is upset about. And the episode ends with Nolan trying to speak with Kalgara, but then he just throws a warning spirit at him and tells him to leave unless he wants to die. In the next episode, we soon find out why the Shandians are so angry, as Moose sneaks away to explain to the doctor in secret that there are these trees called the Kindred Trees that according to Shandian culture contain the souls of their ancestors and protect the people and they're important on the level of the lives of their own villagers. Nolan and the crew cut them all down for some purpose but upon learning of this fact from the doctor Nolan understands the gravity of the situation and he really does care about the other cultures that he you know explores but he did what he knew was right and you know he's prepared to live with the consequences of that even if it means leaving the treasure behind and most of all losing his best friend. 
I think that's the right approach to it. While, you know, respecting and understanding of, you know, other people's cultures is important, Nolan's priorities lie in helping people above all else. And when the actions and traditions of a culture threaten that, I think it is important to step in and do something if you have the knowledge and ability to do so. And I know this kind of goes against the sort of the Star Trek way of doing things, specifically their prime directive of not interfering in development of of cultures less advanced than them. But I think even the crew of the Enterprise still helped to prevent the extinction of civilizations, but they just did it in secret so that they didn't reveal their technological advancements to these people. And I think the same applies here, that lives of the people outweigh any sort of directive, I guess you can say. It's then revealed that they had no choice but to cut the trees down as the Kinets plague infects plant life as well. Makes sense. I mean, it's called the tree fever, but it also affects plants and humans and must be eradicated from both for fear it will spread to the point of decimation of everything on the island. With this information, Kalgara and the Shandians realize what a grave mistake and misunderstanding they made in shunning their friends. As the Shandians ring the bell and Kalgara chases frantically to catch Nolan before he leaves to tell them that they'll wait for them to come back and that they can come back whenever they want. And this has got to be one of the most emotionally resonant moments in the series, or one of them, not the most emotionally resonant, but... Yeah, I cry so hard every time I watch or read this because of just how beautiful and tragic this moment is. Like, I can't even begin to describe how cathartic it is to see that they won't leave each other with the thought that they hate each other. And, you know, the, the idea that may, that they could have possibly lost their best friend due to a misunderstanding when it was really an act of kindness. And at the very least, they left each other on good terms, even if it was a little late. And I also have to mention Oda's amazing penchant for breaking down gender stereotypes. And I love how these two, like, who are some of the toughest manly men, you know, who are both breaking down and ugly crying for each other and their friendship, as well as their sorrow and regret. I think we just don't get to see this enough in fiction, how it's okay for men to show emotion and cry for things like friendship and their love for other guys. And I think this was a great example for young boys reading or watching this to see it's not only okay, but it's also important to do so. You know, as we'll see, tragically, this was the last time they ever got to see each other. We then see after some time has passed, Nolan has returned to his home country in the North Blue to explain the story about the golden city of Shandora to the king. And so the king decided he wants to join Nolan on his voyage back to Jaya this time. However, when he gets there, half the island is missing as the island was sent to the sky because of the knock-up stream. And this is something we already all knew. This then leads to Nolan being accused of a liar and is set to be executed. A couple things about this execution. So to anime-only watchers, as I mentioned in the difference section, there is something missing here. And it may seem a little weird, the strong reaction that the king has towards this. Like, why would he just automatically want to execute Nolan for not finding the island and lying to him? Sure, that is a slight against him, but it seems extreme, at least it does to me, without the added context. But in the manga, as I mentioned, there's a whole page dedicated to showing just how arduous the journey back to Jaya was because it was done with a crew that was hastily put together and not the original one that Nolan used to get there who knew exactly what they were doing and had an established like relationship with Nolan. And a lot of the, the this hastily put together crew couldn't handle the dangers of the Grand Line and it cost the king a lot of resources and men, not to mention putting the king himself through a really traumatic experience. 
And so these brief scenes go a long way to explaining the extreme reaction of the king because of just what he had to endure only to get nothing out of it because of Nolan's lie or perceived lie. The other thing that's more of an observation than anything is how similar the execution of Nolan looks to Roger's execution. And I honestly don't have like a theory or what this means symbolically other than perhaps that the history of Chandra has something to do with Roger or maybe even the One Piece. And it's kind of like foreshadowing, but I'm not nearly smart enough to figure that out. So I'm going to let other people do that. But yeah, it is interesting how it's it's drawn and animated almost very similarly to Roger's execution. And even like the context, although while this one's a, little, a lot more tragic, Noland and Roger essentially are doing the same thing. They're proclaiming that there's this treasure out there that no one seems to believe in. And he's sticking to his guns about it. And both of them ultimately die as a result. But obviously the difference between being, you know, Roger wanting to actually die and having completed his mission, whereas Nolan is dying full of regret as he's never able to reunite with the Shandians, nor or Kalgara. On the other end, we see that the Shandians were almost immediately invaded by the god of the Skypians at the time, along with his army. Obviously having just endured the knock-up stream, as well as the thin air and the lack of dials, they stood no chance and lost the upper, upper yard pretty quickly, and most likely m many of them were killed. What's even sadder is that till his dying breath, all Nolan was thinking about was the safety of his friends, Kalgara and the Shandians, and hoping the best for them. While Kalgara was also wanting to make sure that if Nolan came back that he'd be able to ring the bell to guide him back, as there were so many things left he wanted to tell him. I mean, this has got to be one of the most tragic flashbacks in the series, as there's really no resolution to it. You know, at least the other flashbacks, we saw that the characters made it out okay. You know, Chopper, as tragic as his backstory was, he eventually found Kureha, he eventually found the Straw Hats, similarly with Nami, Sanji. They all eventually got to a good place, but there is no happy ending to this flashback. They both died in horrific ways, never able to see each other again, wondering if the other was even okay and alive. And that's just insanely sad and tragic, like when you really think about it. And not only that, this adds so much more weight to the story of Cricket and Luffy's desire to help him prove that the Golden City was real, because not only was it all real, but that Nolan wasn't a liar, but he was a great man, and all of that was twisted by history. The fact that Cricket grew up resenting his ancestor, it really lends to the theme that the bell ringing would in a way lead his ancestors back to him, as not only will it bring closure and resolution to Nolan and Cricket, but also with Wiper and Kalgara, thereby bringing, you know, bridging the two sets of ancestors with their descendants. And it's a really beautiful sentiment. And it's like, things like this, it's just like when, when I hear people saying that Skypea is, is boring or it sucks or that it should be skipped, like, I don't understand that for whatever reason. Like, you, if you just watch or read this flashback and you've followed the entire Skypea story, I don't understand how you cannot come away with it feeling... It's like, like you're so invested in this story and it's so beautiful. But anyways, yeah, and I think, I think Skypea is well worth it just for this flashback alone. 
But anyways, we come back to the present as Wiper remembers the importance of that bell and why it needs to be found and rung again. And we leave off with Luffy running after NL up the giant beanstalk to prevent him from prevent NL from making off with the bell. But phew, that was a long podcast. But I yeah, I, I felt like I wanted to talk about this flashback in one go, as I feel it's better that way and offers some finality. And I also just really love this flashback so much that I didn't really want to wait to finish talking about it till next week. But yeah, the next few episodes, we are finally in the home stretch and we're nearing the end of the climactic battle for Skypea, and I can't wait to talk about that. But yeah, if you enjoyed this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast for updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection. And if you feel like supporting this podcast, in which you by no means have to, you can check out the Buy Me A Coffee link in my website. Just a couple little points for spoilers this time, but if you don't want to listen to that, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast, and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye. Okay, so spoiler section. Uh, Just a couple points I wanted to talk about, and I don't really have an organized way of talking about this, and I don't have this scripted at all, so it's literally just me rambling. But the first thing is... We now, and this is uh, definitely a um, major spoiler for the current Wano, like chapters 1033 and on. And so definitely, if you haven't, if you're not caught up all the way to the manga at this point, be warned. But yeah, in Wano, we kind of finally have a canonical reason why Sanji survives L4. And it it's kind of due to his inherent germa enhancements that he's had done to his body. Now, at this point in the story, he hasn't really unlocked it like he has here, but it, it kind of explains his insane durability and why he's able to survive an L4 to the face. And so, I, yeah, it's kind of interesting uh, to see this scene now that we know all the enhancements that he's had done to, his, done to him, like his brothers by his father, Judge. The other thing I wanted to mention here is the significance of the of the sun god. This is the first time we've actually hear the about the sun god, and we hear it in the um, in the ritual sacrifice scene where with Moose, and we see them praying to the sun god, the air god, and uh, a couple other gods that I can't remember off the top of my head. But the sun god becomes a prominent thing in the Wano arc, and it's mentioned in there. Obviously, I, I mentioned this the the last time when we had the episode with the uh, the bonfire party earlier in Skypea, where we see Luffy kind of in that same pose. And I don't really know what to really say because I don't, again, I'm not a very good theory crafter. And I, I don't even know where to begin with this one. But there's got to be some sort of connection because the sun god keeps coming up. And and I think we've yet to really get all the connective tissue for this particular thread. And so I don't really have any more analysis or theory behind this. But other than just to draw your attention to the fact that this is the first time that the term sun god is referenced in One Piece. And then finally with the poneglyphs, you know, obviously right now it's not very clear what the poneglyphs are for. But eventually we realize that the poneglyphs actually do provide information not only historical information that could probably help to 
clear up the void sentry, but also how to actually get to the road poneglyphs, which eventually lead to Laughtail and the One Piece. And so it's interesting how these civilizations were tasked with guarding the poneglyphs that basically safeguard information about this void sentry. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out because clearly you get the sense that the celestial dragons or their ancestors basically wiped a whole civilization or a whole group of people out and essentially erased history so that they cover their their genocidal you know crimes up and then basically made the world in their image but whoever was on the receiving end of that attack they put in contingencies in place so that people further down the line would still be able to figure out what happened and maybe change it but yeah it'll it'll be really interesting to see like i think beyond what the one piece is i think what i'm most curious about is to figure out how the poneglyphs and the void sentry and the celestial dragons all come together towards the end of the series because that mystery is pretty fascinating and we're going to get way more into it in the next arc obviously with water seven and Aeneas lobby and robin and ohara but yeah that's pretty much all i really wanted to mention now i know it's not really very coherent or or anything very revelatory but yeah i just wanted to point all of that out but anyways thank you for listening and uh, i'll see you next week bye